Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Before we get into it, I thought I'd just speak briefly about the substantial delay between episodes. This episode was recorded in September of 2017, though don't worry, the science in it is still very relevant to our world today. I had every intention of posting it shortly after it was recorded, though that obviously didn't happen. I ended up taking an unplanned hiatus from podcasting and content creation in general. Over the past two years, I have gone through some substantial personal challenges, and I simply couldn't bring myself to do any work on Talk of Today. Time to change, though. I'm getting back into it, and with a renewed focus and vigor. I'm going to make a short little episode where I'll talk about the direction of Talker today moving forward, but in brief, there will be a lot more to do with philosophy and complexity science, which are things I'm actively studying at the moment. In fact, last year I completed a graduate diploma in philosophy, and I'm about to begin a similar diploma in complexity science at the University of Sydney. Reasons why uh, will be discussed in future episodes, but again, in brief, I'm interested in the nature of the world and what it means for how we should act within it. Uh, and I see philosophy as a means of providing a direction, like a compass, and complexity science as a tool for action, so a way for us to implement what we think we should do. For more information on complexity science, head to samhbarton.com slash complexity, and you'll find a great little video on it from the team at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, where complexity science was born. I'll also be making videos on a variety of topics, which you'll be able to find on YouTube. For any information on all of this, uh, just head to samhbarton.com, where all of my content is going to be hosted from now on. Alrighty, now for the episode. Today, we are talking about emotions. The thing is, though, after this conversation, the word emotion may mean something very different to you. That's because, in recent years, our understanding of these conscious experiences that colour our worlds has changed quite considerably. The general conception is that emotions that we feel are hardwired into us, and that humans around the world have the same emotional repertoire that gets called upon as we traverse the ups and downs of life. Recent findings, however, show us that this may not be the case. Joining me in this episode to help shed some light on this is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is a University Distinguished Professor of Psychology at Northeastern University, with positions in psychiatry and radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Her ongoing work on emotions has resulted in a radical new theory of how the brain creates emotions, changing our view of human nature itself. She has published more than 200 peer-reviewed research papers in top scientific journals on emotion, psychology, and neuroscience, and her writings have been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times. Lisa has a TED Talk out as well, titled, You Are Not at the Mercy of Your Emotions, Your Brain Creates Them. So after this, definitely check it out. I first came across Lisa's work in a podcast by NPR called Incognito. There I learned about her book, How Emotions Are Made. The book is an entertaining and hugely informative read on how our understanding of emotions has changed in recent years and what the implications of our new understanding may be. I was really excited to have this conversation due to the proximate nature of the topic. I found I tend to get really excited by things and people that have a large impact on the way I look at the world. The more that the information changes and alters the lens through which I perceive reality, the more excited and into the topic I get. 
Emotions seem to be central to our experience, and at times they're hard to ignore or control. And they do appear to be universal. What Lisa's work indicates, though, is that we have more control over how we feel and react than we might have previously thought. Because we don't experience our emotions but construct them, we have a greater responsibility for them. It's quite an empowering thought. Lisa and I spoke for a little over an hour, and we didn't get to cover even a third of what I wanted to talk about, partially due to the connectivity issues during the call. I've tried to piece it together as best as I could, but please bear with me. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University. I have research appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, I'm a psychologist and a neuroscientist, but I have interests in um, linguistics, anthropology, um, uh, philosophy of science, philosophy of mind. Uh, I started graduate school um, to do a degree in actually clinical psychology. Um, And um, when I was doing my, the initial research towards my dissertation, um, I was studying actually self-esteem and self-representation. So how do people think about themselves? And I was attempting to replicate some published research, which is what you do when you start graduate school. Um, You usually, I had worked in a number of labs as an undergraduate. And when you go to graduate school, the first thing you do is you try to replicate existing published findings, and then you build on those findings um, to be able to ask your own questions and investigate your own hypotheses. So I was trying to replicate a finding that had been published in literature um, that involved measuring people's feelings of sadness and depression and uh, feelings of fear and anxiety. And the measures were not performing the way that they were supposed to perform given the existing beliefs about what emotions were and how they worked. And um, I tried eight times to replicate experiments um, using these measures and I never was able to do it. And so um, my first reaction to that was I should just Give, I'm obviously I'm not cut out to be a scientist. I just give up the whole enterprise and just go be a therapist. Um, but when I took um, a closer look at my data, I realized something really interesting to me, which was that when people were reporting feeling anxious, they were also reporting feeling depressed. And when they reported um, not feeling one, they didn't feel the other. So there was complete um, correspondence as if they were not able to tell the difference between anxiety and depression, which I thought was kind of strange because everybody knows they're different and they have different clinical, the idea is that they have a different, they have different clinical, associated with different clinical syndromes and um, their, the reigning um, approach to emotion at the time um, also specified that they had different facial expressions associated with them, different um, bodily states, um, like, you know, different changes in heart rate and blood pressure and um, sweating and perspiration and so on. So I thought really naively, well, I'll just figure out how to objectively measure someone's emotion. So I won't ask them how they feel. I'll actually measure objectively. 
objectively without a perceiver, just what are the changes in their face? What are the changes in their body? And I'll figure out, you know, who's anxious, who's depressed. And maybe I'll even study um, ways to make people more accurate, like report on their, their own emotional states more accurately. So that was my idea. And I thought, well, you know, I remember my intro psych textbooks. I remember that um, every emotion um, of there are certain set of emotions where each emotion has its own facial expression, its own physical state. You should be able to just measure those and tell what emotional state someone's in objectively. And so I just went to the literature and started to review the literature systematically to find the best way of measuring people's emotions objectively. And I realized there actually is no way of measuring emotions objectively, which I found really interesting because all the textbooks imply that there, that there are these objective ways. And that just got me really intrigued. Like why would scientists continue to believe um, something as being true when in fact the data from experiments over and over and over again indicate that, um, uh, that, that the hypotheses are, are not supported. So Sure, there are some studies that support the idea that people um, smile when they're happy and frown when they're sad and scowl when they're angry. But there are, first of all, there are very few studies that actually measure what people do with their faces. But of the studies that do, there are even more studies which don't show that. Um, And in fact, show that people cry in happiness and they... um, you know, uh, yell in fear and they um, smile in anger. So that means that variability is the norm um, in how people express emotions. And when you look at the literature on the body, it turns out that um, when you're angry, you know, your heart rate can go up, it can go down, it can stay the same. Uh, and the same is true for every emotion that's ever been studied. Um, And so I just was really curious um, about how it could be that you and I um, feel emotions pretty automatically and we look at each other's faces and listen to each other's voices and we, you know, very quickly perceive emotion in other people, but yet there are no physical markers of any emotion that anyone has ever been able to replicate from study to study. This is a paradox that I just found completely and utterly captivating. And, you know, here we are, here um, we are. <laughs> you know, 25 years later. Um, so the, the classical interpretation of view of emotions was that there exists a physiological fingerprint uh, or basis for emotion that exists across or within all human beings and even other animals because you know we have we've obviously evolved and we have common uh, ancestors and your work uh you identified that this was indeed not the case and um well if that's not the case then what is the case and that's what you've been looking into uh over the past few years so um how has our understanding of emotions changed uh, and what could you describe um what is the theory of constructed emotion as you've uh, as you've called it sure I should point out at the outset that from a scientific standpoint, a theory is not just a set of ideas. Uh, That's how we use the word theory colloquially. 
in everyday life. But in science, a theory um, is a set of ideas that have been backed up by a lot of evidence. So the first thing, um, let's just talk about what the classical view is, the view that scientists believe for a very long time and the view that many of us believed actually, and some people still do, um, and that is the idea that um, lurking deep inside our brain somewhere, each of us has a distinct neural circuit, one for anger, one for fear, one for sadness, um, and a handful of other emotions, and that everyone around the world with a neurotypical brain shares these circuits, and we even share them with some non-human animals. Um, and that when one of these circuits triggers, like say the fear circuit triggers, because let's say a snake slithers past you, um, you know, when you're in the woods or something, um, um, the fear circuit triggers. The idea is that everyone around the world, um, when that when that circuit is triggered, will um, make a certain facial expression of of fear, a wide eyed kind of gasping face, and um, everyone around the world can recognize that face. Um, that everyone around the world will have the same physical changes in their body. Their heart rate will go up, they'll freeze, um, uh, and so on. And um, that there'll be a, a very common feeling of terror or dread. Um, and that this is, you know, that emotions are basically your reactions to, to stuff that happens around you in the world. And that every emotion has its own fingerprint, more or less. Um, that's the general idea. Um, and there are variations, different, um, you know, different um, theoretical approaches that, that, you know, vary a little bit um, in that narrative, but that's the general kind of idea. Um, and, you know, that fits our common experience, right? I mean, when, when fear happens, it usually feels like a, a, a switch has been flipped in your, in your brain, and it kind of takes you over and makes you... Um, think and feel and sometimes do things that you would rather not. That's that's how it feels to us. It feels to us as if emotions are just given. But in fact, your brain isn't doesn't have these um, circuits in it. Um, your brain instead has a set of um, common networks um, that are, you can think of them as um, like all-purpose ingredients, essentially. Just like you would find ingredients in your kitchen like flour and water and salt that you could make a lot of different recipes with. And in fact, you could even make like glue, which isn't even a food. Um, in the same way, your brain has um, a number of these kind of all purpose ingredients networks and they work together to um, create emotions, including your behavior. So animals do share, for example, a circuit for um, uh, running you know, or a circuit for freezing. But those circuits are not um, emotion circuits. They're circuits for actions. Um, and uh, the all-purpose uh, networks in your brain that work together with one another to make different recipes sometimes call on those circuits um, in, uh, in interesting um, ways. So the first idea is that um, your brain makes emotion as you need it. Um, it's their emotions don't come kind of pre-baked into your brain uh, ready-made. The second idea, um, which has a lot of evidence, is that an emotion word like anger in our culture 
doesn't refer to uh, a specific um, physical change. It actually refers to a population of highly variable instances that um, your brain can make in a given situation. So um, I don't know about you, but um, when I'm angry, sometimes I um, yell, sometimes I quietly see, sometimes I laugh, sometimes um, uh, I might cry or I might even um, withdraw. And in each of those cases, what my body is doing in each of those cases is different because your body, um, it doesn't, you know, didn't evolve for emotion. It evolved um, to, to, for action, to move around. So the physiology of what's going on inside your body is going to track whatever your behavior you're, you're engaging in. Um, and similarly, when you look in the brain, what you also see is that the neural patterns that correspond to anger, um, there isn't a single pattern. There's a variety of patterns. Um, so what this means is that an emotion like anger is not a thing. It's a category of instances, a group of variable instances. And this idea is very consistent with Darwin's um, conceptual innovation in On the Origin of Species. When Darwin wrote his very famous book, um, he redefined a biological category as a conceptual category, a category of instances um, where there's no um, kind of pure um, instance, but a lot of variation. Individuals vary in a species, for example. There's no perfect um, cocker spaniel. Um, and in the same way, there's no perfect um, instance of anger. There's just a lot of variability that's situated in the context. So that's the second, you know, piece um, uh, of the theory. And then the third piece is, I think, the most, to me, the most um, remarkable um, uh, aspect. And that is that, you know, it, over the last 10, 15 years, there's been this emerging consensus in neuroscience that your brain doesn't really react to the world. It feels to us, we see things and we react to them. We hear things and we react to them. But in fact, your brain is predicting. It's using its past experience to predict what's going to happen next. And another, um, in, in cognitive science, another word, another um, way we can refer to a prediction is a concept. Your brain is basically using what it knows to using cons using conceptual knowledge about what it what physical state um, your body needs to take, what action to take next, and um, what you will experience, what you will see, what you will hear, and what you will. The in, inner core of your body. So your um, your brain is guessing about what it's to do next, and some of those guesses um, are emotions. Can you? Are we frozen? I can't. I can't tell. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't oh, know. No. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a bit spotty, yeah. but. I th- I th- I, I heard, I heard like ninety nine percent of that. It's slightly spotty, but I think we can still persevere. Okay. <laughs> so we have. So you you were saying that we were making that our 
well, the, the third part of the story is that we actually make predictions uh, about the world. And I'm saying your emotions are predictions. They're predictions that have been confirmed by the world. Actually, everything that you see and hear and taste and smell are predictions that have been confirmed by the world. So, for example, if I ask you to um, imagine in your mind's eye um, uh, a red and green apple, like a Macintosh apple uh, that you would eat, um, can you can you imagine in your mind's eye what that apple looks like? Yes. And if I ask you to imagine grasping the apple and taking a bite of the apple and hearing the crunch of the apple, can you can you feel those symptoms? Yeah. And some people can even taste the apple. You know, they can kind of conjure that sort of sweet tart taste that um, that can come from a Macintosh apple. Um, and what's really interesting is that as I'm asking you these questions um, and you're um, seeing the apple in your mind's eye and you're hearing the crunch and you're tasting the taste, actually your brain is doing something really remarkable. And that is it's changing the firing of its own neurons. So when I ask you, can you see the apple? And you do, you see the ghost of an apple in your mind's eye. Certain parts of your brain are, um, are actually changing the firing of neurons in your visual cortex so that you have the ghostly image of an apple. And when you can hear the crunch and taste the apple, something similar is happening in um, the neurons in gustatory cortex and in auditory cortex. So um, that's really, you know, remarkable. And in fact, if we were doing a brain imaging study and I just said the word apple, we would see changes in activity in visual cortex and auditory cortex and motor cortex um, for holding the apple and so on. Um, in a very in a way that's very similar to if you were actually seeing and holding and hearing and tasting the apple. Now, your brain's ability to is this. Oh, sorry. Continue. No, no. I was just saying these these actually are um, what predictions are. They are your brain prepares itself to see and hear and taste and smell and feel um, things before they happen. Okay. I was just going to ask, is this similar to what some would call um, like mirror neurons? Like if I was to picture someone or see someone doing something, would similar neurons that cause that sort of action fire as well? Or so, is this a similar sort of thing? Um, this is, yes. No, no, no. Well, there's a debate. And please correct me if I'm wrong. There's a debate. Because there's a very solid chance I am. <laughs> exist as a special class of neurons in the brain. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to get into that debate right now. But what I'll say is that, um, yes, it's very similar, but it's not special to any set of neurons in your brain. This is how your brain works. So um, it's not motor ne- or, um, mirror neurons are, are a set, what people call mirror neurons are a set of neurons in, um, uh, in the motor system um, and uh, the system that controls the, um, your skeletal muscles. And, uh, and so it's very similar to what you see in all the sensory systems, actually, that um, psych- psychologists have lots of different names for this. You can call it simulation. Some call it perceptual inference. Some call it memory. Um, some people um, call it um, 
prediction. Um, what, what these are basically, these signals, is just that these are um, your brain drawing on its past experience to predict what's going to happen next in a given situation. Um, so it, it's just like um, to you and to me, you know, we're sitting here talking, we're listening to each other um, speak. And to us, it feels like we're just listening um, and reacting to what each other is saying. But in fact, both of us have many, many years of um, experience with the English language. And so our brains are predicting every single word that comes out of our mouths. And if I had said the mm -hmm. word, you know, if I had said that words come out of some other orifice of my body instead of my mouth, uh, that would have been surprising, right? Would have been very surprising. Yeah, because your brain is predicting um, that you'll that I'm going to say something. <laughs> I'm going to say no. I didn't. I didn't realize that you were pausing for me. You were waiting for me to say mouths. <laughs> I was just. I, I know, thought we might have been having, having some more technical yeah, issues. We're having. We're having. <laughs> Think about it this way. Have you ever had a, um, a song that is going through your head that you can't get rid of this song? Yeah. Yeah. That's your, that's some certain parts of your brain are modulating, changing the firing of auditory neurons so that you hear a song that actually isn't playing. Have you ever gone to take a drink out of a glass, let's say a, like a glass that's filled with clear liquid and you're preparing yourself? Well, we, you go to take the drink and to you, you're surprised at what you taste. You're, maybe you're expecting water and maybe it's vodka mm -hmm. or something. That's because your brain is actually already preparing mm -hmm. itself by changing the firing of its own neurons to taste something. And what's really interesting is that mm -hmm. if your brain has predicted well, so for example, when I asked you the question about the apple, um, if I actually then showed you an apple and the apple was exactly as you had predicted it, there's no information about this apple that would make it very far into your brain because the neurons are already firing in a way that capture the apple. So there's no new information um, that would, um, that would uh, change the firing of those neurons, right? That'd just be excess. That'd be a waste, a waste of energy. Exactly. So the only time that you're, that showing you an apple will change the firing of your neurons is when you're facing information that you didn't expect. That in science, we call that prediction error. But in everyday life, it has another fancy name. You know, we just call it learning. That's what learning is. And these and these uh, errors can manifest and have terrible consequences at times. I mean, you know, I think in, in your book you write, um, you know, someone who is uh, on the streets, a, a policeman who's on the streets of a, a city that are quite dangerous, they may see someone reach into their um, pocket and pull something out, and they might actually see a gun. Whereas, in fact, that is not that is not the case. But they have predicted, like, well, they have predicted that they would see a gun, and they might act accordingly. I'm not sure if that example is specific to the book but that's just one that springs to mind um and how the consequences could be quite dire yes exactly and in fact i not only did i write about this in the book but i wrote about it in um in the new york times i occasionally publish opinion pieces and that piece drew 
a lot of commentary over email, some of which was from police officers and um, people in the military. Really, um, don't get me wrong, I mean, the piece really pissed off some people, but there were other people who emailed me to say, you know, I to tell me stories about, you know, how they had almost shot someone um, and didn't couldn't understand how they could make that mistake that they thought that they saw um, in one case, you know, there was one guy who was telling me this really heart wrenching story about how he had almost, he thought he saw um, a militiaman, a whole group of militiamen. And in fact, what he saw was a 12 year old boy. In fact, what was in front of him was a 12 year old boy um, with, with a herd of sheep. And he almost killed that boy and has carried around this guilt with him um, for decades, actually. Um, and couldn't understand how he missaw, um, but, but it was obvious, actually, from the story, exactly how he could have mispredicted. Um, and so yeah. when you mispredict, sometimes your brain will correct itself. It will actually take in the new information um, and correct its prediction. And you've learned something, and that means your brain is now equipped to predict better the next time. But sometimes your brain will ignore the information um, that's different, and it just goes with its prediction. And when that happens, sometimes uh, mistakes are made with tra really tragic consequences. Mm. So we were talking about how these predictions when the predictions are, are correct, you just go along with whatever you've predicted rather than update the information accordingly, if, even if there's, you know, slight discrepancy. Um, in the book, so we have, uh, you know, a lexicon of, we have all these words that we can use to describe everything um, from emotions to foods to uh, objects all around us. And words, um, from what I gather from the book, words and words for emotions are a way of chunking information about something into well, smaller chunks so that we can basically um, save cognitive capacity. So instead of you know, the great example that you listed in the book is instead of uh, saying, could I please have, you know, calling up Domino's and saying, could I please have a uh, flat piece of bread with um, cheese and sauce and all this on it? You could just say, could I please have a pizza and uh, emotions or the words that we have for specific emotions serve the same purpose in that they uh, can just, save us a lot of cognitive capacity or energy. So instead of me trying to express with an entire paragraph about how I'm feeling, I could just say I am distraught or elated or, uh, you know, use uh, words that can better describe how I think I'm feeling. So you highlight in the book that, or you, you I've, I've seen that having a greater vocabulary or emotion, you know, uh, lexicon of emotions that you can use to describe how you're feeling can lead to um, health benefits. Um, could you talk on that and perhaps even share some emotions that, oh, and, and, and one more point, you say that, you know, because we construct these emotions, we might not have um, cultures around the world may not actually share the same emotions. So uh, could you just uh, talk on talk on that point and perhaps share one of your favorite emotions that might not be in the Western lexicon? Sure. I mean, you've just you've just nicely summarized half of the book. <laughs> so there are a lot. There's a lot to explain there to unpack. Yeah, yeah, and I've been I've been thinking about how I'm trying to structure this conversation because it's so 
jam packed full of information right. and it all ties together. And uh, so it was, it was a wonderful book, as I said at the start. So uh, please try and do what you can with the, the what I just dumped on you. <laughs> so the first thing to understand, um, let's start, um, let's start with your last question. Um, and then we can, you know, maybe get to some of the other points that you raised. Um, so what the first way, the, the starting point, I think, is to realize that um, an infant brain, babies aren't born with circuits for emotion embedded in their brains, right? They, they don't come pre-wired to perceive the world. An infant brain is um, not a miniature adult brain. It's the brain that's waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world. Every um, word that you speak, every action that you take towards an infant, um, when you change its diaper, when you feed it, when you cuddle it, um, when you sing a song in its presence, you know, anything, um, any interactions that you have with that infant affect the um, wiring of that infant's brain. And so, Infant brains come in all cultures, all human infants are born with a brain that is waiting to wire itself to the physical and social uh, circumstances of the environment in which it grows. So if you're in your culture, if you carry your baby around on your chest or on your back, um, that baby's going to have a very different set of experiences than a baby who's pushed around in a stroller, right? If you have an infant um, in your culture, if you let your infants cry themselves to sleep or um, you don't co-sleep with your infant um, or you, um, you know, you feed your infant on a schedule and so on, that infant's brain is going to be wired with different experiences than an infant who's fed whenever you know, whenever it shows signs of being hungry or an infant um, who um, sleeps with a parent or um, uh, an infant who's cuddled, um, you know, versus one that isn't and so on and so forth. And there are certain experiences that are required for normal brain development um, in, by all uh, infants in all cultures. And that has to, so, you know, it's not just that we have to feed babies and keep them warm and um, keep them uh, um, dry, um, we also have to talk to them. We have to um, sing to them. We have to cuddle them. If you don't, if you only meet the physical needs of an infant and all of that social stuff is gone, then an infant brain doesn't develop normally. Um, and in fact, the body doesn't develop normally. And there's, we have, unfortunately, natural experiments um, which show us that this is the case. Uh, for example, like um, um, the you know children who were warehoused in um, Romania, for example, in orphanages. So, what's happening when you talk to an infant, or when you um, when you're caring for an infant? Well, one of the things that happens is that the infant is statistically learning the the um, the sensory experiences that co-occur and um, it's learning the regularities in its world. And some of those regularities are pointed out to them by words. So for example, um, if I, in experiments that scientists have done this with infants as young as three months old, if you say to an infant, 
look, sweetie, this is a wug. Okay. And then you put the wug down and it makes a squeaking noise. And then you say, you know, look, sweetie, this is a wug. And of course, this looks nothing like the other object and doesn't feel anything like the other object. And you put it down and it makes a squeaking noise. Then when you take a third object, which also looks and, sa- and sounds and feels nothing like the other two, and you say, look, sweetie, this is a wug, the infant's going to expect this to squeak, even though they look nothing the same. So the word is a clue for the infant to understand that things which look different, sound different, smell different, feel different, all have the same function. Why does this matter when it comes to emotion uh, words? Because um, in our culture, um, for example, there are lots of different physical states, lots of different facial movements, lots of different actions that we label as sad. And so the baby learns that um, sadness has a lot of of sadness have a lot of variety, just like uh, the infants in the experiment learned that, you know, these three things, which were all variable, all have the function of squeaking. And so what you're doing when you use words to label things for your infants is you're, you're helping them to develop a, a system of concepts that their brains can use to make predictions about what's going to happen inside their own bodies and in the world. In our culture, um, the word sadness is used and we have a concept for sadness. Um, and that concept covers a range of instances. In other cultures, like in Russian, for example, there's also a, you know, translated a word for sadness, but it covers a somewhat different variety of, um, of experiences and instances. And in some cultures, like Tahitian culture, for example, that population of instances isn't grouped together. Um, it, it's not grouped, they're not grouped together as sadness and their function is somewhat different than those experiences are than the function of those experiences in our culture. So in our culture, um, you know, our brains are wired to make sadness. They're wired to predict and to make sadness in various situations. Um, in Russian, if you grew up in Russia, um, then um, that word would be a tool uh, for you to make a different set of concepts um, re- related to sadness. And in Tahitian culture, you're, those babies have their brains wired to make um, a different set of concepts that have nothing to, that are not sadness, right? They're, the physical states, they turn those physical states into emotions that are, um, or into an emotion that's not, an, not the equivalent of sadness. It's an experience that we don't, we don't have in our culture. So here's the cool thing about the human brain. When I say that your brain is using its past experiences to predict the immediate future, which becomes your present, it's not like retrieving past experiences in their full form. What it's doing is it's taking bits and pieces of the past and combining them in new ways. And that's called conceptual combination. So your brain has the ability to make 
a new concept that it's never been exposed to before, for which it has no word, but it's, it's doing this in an effortful way. Um, because there's no single word, your brain has to work to put together um, the, um, the bits and pieces of the past in a new way. And if you're trying to tell me about this and we have no word for it, it means I can't predict very well. Um, you know, you can't just say the word sadness and then that, you know, evokes in my brain a whole slew of um, features being predicted just in the same way as if we say the word pizza. If I say, do you want to have pizza for dinner to you, Sam, you, just the word pizza evokes in you, allows your brain to predict all of these features that go with pizza. You know, that word pizza probably does more for me than I'd like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it's dark chocolate. We all have our thing. But, um, but, you know, the word can allow your brain to start simulating or predicting, you know, to change the firing of your neurons to predict the sensations that come from pizza. But that's not possible to do um, when you don't have a word um, for the concept mm-hmm. that you're making. And so as a consequence, we can do conceptual combination. We can feel, um, uh, well, we hypothesize that we can feel um, emotions that don't exist in our own culture, but we have to work harder to do it. And it's not clear that what we're feeling is exactly the same as what someone would feel, um, but it may not be identical. We don't actually know for sure because nobody's ever actually studied this Uh, question. Yeah, great example. Um, And one that I think a lot of people listening would be familiar with is the term schadenfreude. It is a great example of one of these emotions that we all kind of feel that we, well, a lot of us who perhaps may not be aware of the the word, which is, which describes, you know, taking pleasure at someone else's misfortune. We kind of, everyone who's seen funniest home videos has felt schadenfreude, but they may not have that, that word to describe it. But now, um, it's kind of caught, it's caught on to a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of spread mainly because of the internet and how appropriate it is and how everyone's kind of experienced it. So, uh, yeah, I just thought, uh, it's, it's probably one of the best examples that listeners may be uh, familiar with. So one of the most, uh, powerful or exciting things I think outlined in your book is that we, and, and you say, you say it best is that we are architects of our own experience or our realities. And because we construct the world in which we live, uh, we, I guess, have a greater responsibility to, um, well, we have the, the, the responsibility is on us when it comes to how we interpret the world and how we choose to react to things. Um, and I, I just thought that was a, well, it's really quite exciting because one can improve their, I guess, the emotional landscape in which they exist by learning more words or um, even just becoming more mindful of uh, what their body is telling them and how they interpret that. We can actually um, alter how we interact or we, we can kind of change the, the filter that we use to view the world and uh, navigate. Uh, in accordance, I guess, with our goals. So just um, not saying this as eloquently as I might have wished, but. Uh, <laughs> I think you said it very eloquently. I think, I think you, I think you, you captured um, the basic point mm-hmm. of what I was trying to say. And that is that, um, that we're not, 
100% responsible for every single thing that we feel and do and say. Um, obviously, we're working with what we're, what, you know, we're working in part with, with what we're exposed to. But we have much more responsibility and more control um, than, uh, than, than we might imagine that we do. Mm -hmm. And we don't have control in the moment always in the sense that, um, you know, if you want to change how you feel, it's really hard to snap your fingers and then just change how you feel in the moment. That's really, that's like the hardest thing to do. And it's something that, um, that even, um, the most, uh, responsible people have trouble doing yeah. Right. But, but on that, on that point, if it's really I, the case that your past Sorry, I was just I was just going to say that um, I'm really sorry for interrupting. Except if you're feeling something like nervousness, you might be able to reframe that into excitement. I've done that a few times where I I felt really I, I thought I've been nervous, absolutely. Oh, but absolutely. I've reframed nervousness absolutely. as excitement, and it's actually really changed my outlook. So I'm sorry for interjecting. Absolutely, there, I just wanted to highlight. No, that. absolutely, and in fact, um, and in fact, transforming nervousness into excitement um, or um, determination or enthusiasm is actually an extremely efficient way of getting rid of test anxiety and, um, uh, and so on and so forth. But uh, what I was referring to is if you're really worked up um, and excited or nervous, however you conceptualize it, um, it's almost impossible to snap your fingers and uh, be calm. That's, that's, a, that's not, we're not wired to be able to do that particularly well. However, if it's really the case that your past experience, your brain is using your past to um, conjure, uh, to predict the immediate future, which becomes your present, then you can seed your brain with experiences um, in the present that it can then use to automatically uh, construct predictions in the future. So while you wouldn't be investing your energy to cultivate new experiences um, in the moment, um, your brain then is equipped to um, make predictions with those experiences in the future in a really automatic way. And in that sense, um, the, the horizon of your control over your experiences is much broader um, than you might imagine. Um, but, but correspondingly, it means um, that you're also somewhat more responsible um, than you might imagine as well. And I, I just want to be really, really clear about this. Um, you know, when, when something bad happens to someone, I'm not saying that they're necessarily responsible for that bad thing happening to them. What I am saying is that when something bad happens to you um, and you're a victim of that bad thing, um, your responsibility comes to, into play in um, how um, uh, the consequences of that bad thing play out. Um, I'm, what I'm saying is that, um, you know, when I was a therapist, um, I used to work with um, girls who were um, the victims of early um, abuse as children. And one of the hardest things for, for them to realize was that they were sort of victimized twice, you know, first because something bad, very bad happened to them as children that they, you know, couldn't protect themselves from and they weren't in any way responsible for. Um, but then 
they were the ones who were responsible for kind of cleaning up the mess, the psychic mess that was left over. Not because they were culpable for that bad thing that had happened, but because who else is going to do it? Mm-hmm. Like you're the only one who can. And it requires a lot of effort. And often it is very, just it means experiencing a lot of distress and it's really tough. Um, but there's no other path forward. Mm. And so I think for the most part, people feel um, empowered by the idea that they're, they have somewhat more control and, um, you know, responsibility and culpability or blameworthiness are not the same thing. Sometimes you're responsible for fixing something that you are not, that you're not culpable for, that it's not your fault but you're still responsible for fixing it because there is, there just isn't anybody else to do it. Um, and so in that sense, um, understanding that the horizon of your control is much broader gives you a set of options that are not necessarily easy to enact, but they are possible to enact. And many people enact them um, to the benefit of their own lives. Yeah. I, I want, I know um, our time is, uh, uh, drawing short. So I'd just like to ask one or two questions before we wrap up. Um, what are the implications of this uh, new, uh, more informed view of emotions? And if we could just be brief, because they're actually quite large. I mean, there's, there's the law, there's the, all the money that's being spent on technologies that are trying to read people's emotions. So, um, what have you come across? Uh, what have people spoken to you about, um, throughout the course of your work about the implications of of this that you know um i have four chapters uh that discuss implications in the book as you know yeah. and um surprisingly not only have i received um thousands at this point of emails from people discussing those implications but other people have raised a whole set you know a whole spectrum of other potential implications that i hadn't really even considered you know like there's one philosopher who's talking to me about the implications um, of this um, theory for fiction. Um, there's implications for movie making. There's implications for child rearing. There's implications for educating your children. Um, there's implications for um, what is called um, acculturation stress, which is when um, people immigrate from one country to another and they go to a country that's um, you know, very different, where the concepts are very different. Um, typically when that happens, they and their children, in particular their children, um, start to develop stress-related disorders. Um, wh- why is that the, the case? How, you know, how is it that not knowing a set of concepts in, a, in, a, in, in your adopted culture, particularly emotion concepts, how could that be harmful to your health? Um, uh, so um, the, somebody from the military Um, in Canada emailed me this morning asking whether um, anyone had ever studied um, emotional granularity, which is having a large emotion vocabulary and being able to use emotion concepts in a a very um, flexible way to construct your your emotions, whether that's ever been studied um, in a military context with with active um, military personnel or um, with veterans. So, Lots and lots of implications um, for, for, you know, emotions are part of what, um, are part of our theory of human nature. It's part of what makes us um, the kind of species that we are. Um, 
There's no domain of your life where emotions are irrelevant. Um, and so the, the implications are, are quite broad, actually. Um, uh, if you give me a domain, pick a domain, and I'll, I'll give you uh, an example. But there are so many domains. Yeah, I think, law, I think the law is, is a good one just because uh, it affects all of us. And uh, perhaps, yeah, just, just the law I think would be the best uh, for, for this instance. Sure. So there are many implications for law, but what I would start with is, to, you know, the understanding that the law is prescriptive, it's normative. It's basically, the law is a set of um, rules um, for um, what you can feel when and um, how responsible you are for your behavior um, and how culpable you are for the harm that is caused to other people by your behavior. Um, and so in the law in the United States and in other countries as well, there's this idea that um, you are, you know, emotions are like your inner beast that sometimes come out and cause you to do and say things that you would rather not. And that can be harmful to other people. But there's this idea that because emotions are part of your animal nature, you're sort of less responsible for your actions and less culpable for the harm that's caused to other people um, by those actions when uh, they're driven by emotion, as opposed to rational thought where you're seen as much more culpable for your actions. And in the book, I talk about how, first of all, this idea that the brain or that the human mind is a battleground between um, emotion and cognition or between, you know, your inner beast and your um, rational um, nature is a myth. It's a myth uh, that is not particularly well supported by the anatomy of your brain or by the functioning of your brain. And if so the idea being that, you know, you can, um, your brain can make emotions automatically and it can make emotions with a lot of premeditated effort and your brain can make a thought automatically and it can make a thought with a lot of premeditated effort and so it's not the case that emotions are automatic and thoughts are very deliberate um, with you know made with a lot of effort and um and, and a lot of control you can have um, emotions or thoughts that feel very automatic and you feel like you have no control and ones where, you know, you've put a lot of effort into cultivating them. And, but in the law, it is a, in the U S and in many other countries, it's generally the case that you're seen as less culpable and less responsible. Um, you're less seen as less responsible for your actions and therefore less culpable for the harm that your actions cause. And it's a place where it's one of the places out of many places where the um, existing legal system doesn't match what we know to be um, from neuroscience and biology and psychology um, to be the way that, that um, your brain works. Yeah. Lisa, I would love to keep on chatting. There's so many things I'd love to um, bring up from degeneracy and, you know, the complexity science in the context of emotions and, you know, post hoc rationalization of decisions. I mean, that's something that I really wanted to talk about as well. But uh, perhaps uh, sometime in the future, I think we, we need to bring it, uh, wrap things up. If you could just, um, if you have any asks of the audience or any requests, anything that you'd recommend that you check out or uh, anything at all that you'd like to say to the people listening, um, please take the time to do so. Sure. I guess what I would say is, um, I think it's important um, 
to be open-minded and curious um, that um, in science, if you look at physics and chemistry and biology, if you look at any science, science usually starts with um, using very common sense explanations that match our own experience. And then progressively, um, as our methods get better and our questions get more sophisticated, eventually we start to discover through um, scientific method that the causal structure of the world, how things work, you know, how the universe works, for example, isn't exactly uh, what we thought um, based on uh, using our own experience as a guide. You know, your own experience is, no matter how confident you are um, that your experience reveals to you how the world works, it really doesn't. That's what science is taught. That's what physics has taught us. That's what chemistry has taught us, biology. And that's also true here. So what I always tell my own students is something that I tell audiences, and it's something I try to remember myself, which is that when I'm reading something that match it, that, that, you know, when I'm reading something, I think, ah, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> I sort of stop and think, okay, I just read something that um, really, really um, confirms a deeply held belief that I already have. I wonder what it is. And I try to sort of figure that out. Mm-hmm. And when I read something and I think that is bullshit, I think to myself, I sort of stop and think, okay, I just read something which violated a deeply held belief that I have. And I, it's in those moments that I try to pay particular attention um, to what's being said um, so that I can be mindful um, of what I'm learning. And so I guess that's what I would, uh, I would suggest to your readers. I think that there's a lot in this book which is counterintuitive. It's the value is not that it's counterintuitive. It's kind of amusing that it's counterintuitive. The value is that um, there's a lot of scientific evidence from many different domains of science um, to back up this uh, count, these counterintuitive claims. And um, so I think that approaching um, a, a book like this one, um, you know, it's best to do it with a, a curious, open mind. Thanks again to Lisa for taking the time to chat and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find links to what was discussed in the show notes at samhbarton.com slash podcast. If you have any feedback, uh, please feel free to reach out. Uh, You can do so on the contact page or just shoot me an email at sam at talkoftoday.com. Thanks again for listening.